our great Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have shown us your love, as we have heard uh, revealed your glory in the gift of your Son. And we pray now that we would have a believing sight of him as we look at your word. Would you open our eyes, would you awaken our souls uh, to look upon the King of glory and to adore him. We need your help, so please would you give it to us um, and would you do everything good. Amen. Super. Um, I wonder if you are weary today uh, and whether that's a bad thing. Now the clocks have changed, that can introduce a bit of weariness, can not it? End of a school term. And um, we have been battling for more than a year with coronavirus restrictions. Maybe we are weary. Um, but is weariness a bad thing? And maybe sometimes it is. Maybe sometimes it is bad to be weary. But, but did you know that there is a kind of weariness that is needed if we are to know joy? Now, I was reading this week from a guy called Henry Skugel from the 17th century, who wrote, Never doth a soul know what solid joy and substantial pleasure is, till once, being weary of itself, it renounce all propriety, give itself up unto the author of its being. Saying when our souls become so weary of ourselves that we give up and give over to the author of life, that kind of weariness is the path to solid joy. A kind of weariness that is a path worth treading to become weary of ourselves. And so why don't we um, see if we can learn a little soul weariness this morning. Now, our passage this morning um, has a, a pretty ominous beginning. Just remind you of how we got here. It is Palm Sunday today and a few weeks ago uh, we looked at the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. Um, arriving with the Passover crowds, riding on the donkey he, he was making a deliberate declaration that he is the king. And he went into the temple and he acted like he was in charge. The religious leaders take offense and they challenge Jesus. So Jesus tells them three stories. Three stories to show that they need to repent. Otherwise, they will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the religious leaders respond to this by making plans to arrest Jesus. The problem that they have, though, is that the crowds are on Jesus' side. Uh, the crowds think Jesus is a prophet. Uh, and so the, the religious leaders want to kind of dilute his support so they can arrest him. And, and they do that by bringing these questions to him. Three questions they bring. Uh, we saw the first two last week. A question about taxes. A question about marriage and resurrection. And um, we, we saw at the end of the second question, the plan to discredit Jesus is failing after the first two questions, verse 33 says, the crowds aren't disillusioned, they are astonished at his teaching. Well, our passage brings the third question. Look with me, verse 34. The Pharisees got together. And Matthew kind of phrases this in quite an unusual way. Uh, literally, he says, they gathered together in the same place. And, and that phrase that he uses, it's just used a couple of times in the Bible. Um, uh, the same phrase is used at the beginning of Psalm 2. And I think there's an echo of Psalm 2 here. Uh, Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together. That's the phrase. Against the Lord and against his Messiah. Uh, the Psalm 2 describes how the rulers join together to stand against and resist the Lord and his Messiah. 
Exactly what's happening in Matthew 22. The Pharisees standing together, banding together to test Jesus. And, and to feel the weight of the antagonism of this conversation. And do you know who Matthew describes as the tester of Jesus? Back in Matthew chapter 4 in the wilderness, it's the devil who tested, tempted Jesus. In verse 3 of Matthew chapter 4, the devil is called the tempter, the tester of Jesus. Now, these Pharisees are against Jesus. They play the role of the devil in this as they seek to destroy him. Uh, I think it helps to bear that in mind because they ask a pretty good question. Now, verse 36, do you see their question? Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Good question. But it's asked with malicious intent. What was their plan then? Well, well, this was a a heavily debated question of the time. The the Pharisees had drawn out the 613 commands they could find in the law. And they argued how to organise them. How do you categorise them? What order do you put them in? And their debates were inconclusive. And, And there's the beauty of them asking Jesus this question. When the Pharisees argued about this question, as they did, someone always had a counterpoint. No one really ever came out on top. The debate just went on and on and on. So whatever Jesus says, he's going to please some and offend others. And and the crowds are going to see Jesus is just like the Pharisees. He's just caught up in that cycle of argument. And needless to say, their plan doesn't succeed. Jesus answers the question so well that in the silence which follows, he gets to ask his own question. And after he asks his own question in verse 46, no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now out of the the murky maliciousness of this confrontation, a beam of glory shines. Let's try and trace it out. Let's Let's see a bit more detail. This great command. Uh, Jesus doesn't hesitate to give an answer. Do you see that? There's no preamble. There's no back and forth question. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is hallowed ground, really. What do you make of Jesus' answer to this question? What is it that makes this command so great? Well, first of all, this command is so great because it concerns the excellence of a soul. It concerns love. It's about what someone loves. Now, how do we measure the weight of a human soul? We can't see it. We can't pluck out a soul and kind of examine it. Now, the greatest command doesn't focus on what we think or what we do, but on what we love, because that's the beauty of a human soul. It's found in what it loves. Now, this is the greatest command because it's concerned with something that goes right to the core of our humanity. Humans are lovers. For better or for worse, we attach in affection and passion, and that attachment defines us. That's what makes this command so great. Uh, Secondly, what makes this command so great is because of the object of the command. See? Love the Lord your God. 
Now, a command to love that is unhinged from this object is not good. When the Beatles sang, all you need is love, they were wrong. Because it matters what we love. Now, this command is greatest because it commands our love to God. And who is God? Now, God is beyond description, isn't he? We, we sang it in the song, who has held the ocean in his hands? There's nothing in the world to which we can compare God. Now, the psalmist says that God has to stoop to look into creation. He holds every atom of the universe in place. Now, even now, right now, in the, in the rings of Saturn, the molecules that are going round, he knows every one. He knows every hair on our head. All things in existence come from him. And yet he's beyond all things. There's no limit to his power. There's no end to his perfections. He is all in all. And God is gloriously happy. Well, one of the Psalms says he always does whatever makes him happy. He's abundantly delighted. You see, with even the kind of poor and clouded understanding that we have of God, to be commanded to love him is to be told to do something that is most wonderful. That there really is nothing greater that God could tell us to do. He tells us to attach our souls to the one who is most delightful, the one who is most splendid, the one who is infinitely lovely, the one who is perfectly satisfying. And the beauty of a human soul is found in what it loves. And if the soul loves God, that soul is defined by the most happy and itself set on a course to lasting happiness. Now what more could God give us to love? What greater object for our affections to be set on? What is more lasting? What is more worthy? What is more delightful? What is more enduringly satisfying? What more could God have given us to love than himself? A love that is untethered to infinite beauty is toxic and defiling and failing and limited and it will, dis- it will disappoint and cripple our soul. Because we were made for God. Our souls can only know solid joy when our love is fixed on him. And notice Jesus says, love the Lord your God. The command comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It was given to this people who were undeserving and they were unlovely. But they became lovely. They became loved and owned because God moved to them in might and mercy. And Deuteronomy 6 is a response to God's kind of covenant-creating ceremony when he met with his people and he bound himself up with them, identified himself with them and they with him. God, who is objectively most lovely, has made himself subjectively lovely to his people. Love the Lord your God. Love him. What makes this command so great? Thirdly, it's great because it's all-encompassing. Love the Lord your God, not a little or in part, but with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It's, it's love on steroids, isn't it? It's love to the max. Love that leaves nothing out. Love that holds nothing back. Now, this is the great command because it covers every aspect of our being. Every moment of existence. All is to be given in love to God. And one commentator says, love God with every globule of your being. Every globule, I'm not sure what a globule is, but it encapsulates something, doesn't it? 
What makes this command so great? Fourthly, it's great because of its complement. The second command, love your neighbor. The first command is to love God, verse 39. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It comes from Leviticus chapter 19. And the command is second because it sits in and under the first. A love for God is to be applied in love for your neighbor. You can't separate these two. Now, your love for your neighbor is not with all your heart and soul, but it is as yourself. A practical care for the needs of the other person because of love for God. What makes this command so great? Fifthly, it's great because it sums up the law and the prophets, verse 40. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. And one scribe put it, you've got these commands and the rest of the Old Testament is but commentary. These commands are the foundation upon which everything else is built. All other instructions apply these two great commands. This is a full-bodied answer, isn't it, that Jesus gives The Pharisees ask their question, which is the greatest command? And Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor. And the Pharisees may want to have kind of dragged him down and to argue about the details. But as Jesus says this, the question that is begging is this. How are they doing with that? These are the greatest commands. How are they getting on with it? He's speaking to the religious elite. These are the, the, the... the, the, the experts, it says it's an expert in the law, a Bible expert who asked the question. And Jesus says, this is the Bible, it's all summed up. The whole law and the prophets is in this. It all hangs on love for God and love for your neighbor. So how are you getting on with that, Pharisee? How are you treating the neighbor in front of you right now? That's the sharp edge of this confrontation, isn't it? Jesus says the greatest is to love God and love your neighbor. It's not loving to ask Malicious questions to trap. It's not loving to plot to kill an innocent man. Now, in this conversation, they are profoundly failing to love their neighbor. And that lack of love exposes that they do not love God. They are in Psalm 2. They are set against the Lord and against his Messiah. But what then of us? Greatest command is a searching command. It always has been. We must ask ourselves as we hear this, what posture have we taken before the Lord? What what place does God have in the affections of our souls? Is it even necessary for us to ask that question? Is it even necessary for us to ask, have we loved God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind? Of course we haven't. So easy to admit, isn't it? So easy to confess, of course we haven't loved like that. And then our neighbour is ourselves, have we? Of course not. Every bitterness, every hardness, every envy, every anger, every lust, every unkind word, every dismissive roll of the eyes, every neglect to care for the need of others, all of it. This lack of love for neighbour reveals lack of love for God. And then into the silence, Jesus asks his own question. Uh, The various groups within the religious establishment have brought their questions. Asked about taxes, marriage, resurrection, Bible interpretation. Important questions. But it's Jesus' question that decides all the others. You see his turn, look at verse 41. Jesus asks them, 
What do you think about the Messiah? Now, since the beginning of the year, I've been sending out a brief weekly reflection, a short video, working through questions and answers about what we believe. Now, this last week, the question was, what does it mean that we call Jesus the Christ, the Messiah? What does it mean? You might want to give five minutes to have a quick look at that at some point. A quick overview on what that title means. But when Jesus speaks to a group of people who are well aware of what Messiah meant. And that they, they had searched the scriptures and worked out their expectations of, of who the Messiah was and, uh, and what he would do. Uh, Jesus focuses the question. He wants to get to the identity of the Messiah. Whose son is he? Not a difficult question for them, is it? Off the bat, they give their response. An easy one. The son of David. Top marks they get in the test. Uh, David was the great king over Israel. God had promised one of his descendants would be the Messiah. Great answer, the right answer, but Jesus says it's not enough of an answer. It's not sufficient. He says, how is it then? That David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord. For he says, and this is Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. He, David, writing under divine inspiration, speaks about the Lord. That is God, Yahweh, speaking to someone who David calls my Lord, David's superior. And it was unthinkable that anybody, especially one like David, would refer to his descendant as his Lord. It wouldn't have made sense to anyone. The Pharisees answer, the Messiah is the son of David. It's a true answer, but it's not a sufficient answer. And because they didn't make enough of the Messiah, they were blinded to their peril and they were ignorant of their hope. Now, psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's got loads to say about the Messiah. But the bit that Jesus refers to highlights how God will deal with his enemies. See that psalm? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. God says to the Messiah, you are the one who will take the place of highest authority. You will sit at the right hand of God. You will be enthroned. Uh, the Messiah is the king, and he is the greatest of all kings, the king of kings, greater than great David. And as king... As king of kings, in the place of ultimate authority, he will triumph certainly over his enemies. And note that it is his enemies, the Messiah's enemies, who will be put under his feet. Every enemy, every one who rises against the Messiah, everyone who stands against him will be vanquished. You see, at this point, Jesus isn't playing Bible trivia. He's not just trying to outsmart the Pharisees. Jesus is pressing them at their point of deepest need. If we allow him, he will press us also. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey on that first Palm Sunday, he was deliberately presenting himself as the king, as the Messiah. And now he shows, from the, he shows the Pharisees from the Bible that the Messiah will certainly triumph over his enemies. And as he says it, who are his enemies? Psalm 2 describes them, those who set themselves against the Lord and his Messiah, those who refuse the commands of God, they are his enemy. Jesus speaks to those who plot to kill him, those who are maliciously trying to entrap him. The Pharisees, these Pharisees are the enemies of the Messiah. And what does the Bible say will happen? 
Psalm 2 says the Messiah will rule and will crush those who stand against him. Psalm 110 says his enemies will be put under his feet. But what then of us? Now what about our failure to love God and love neighbour? What about that easy confession we make about our failure to love God with all that we have? Now our misplaced, disordered love, it puts us against the Lord and against his Messiah. Our inability to love God completely only serves to demonstrate that we have this innate enmity toward him. Our hearts refuse our maker. So what about us? How will God deal with us? Now this passage which first speaks about wholehearted love for God and then secondly about the Messiah's victory over his enemies. It requires us to take a good look at our hearts. The Bible often requires us to do that. And looking at our hearts isn't really for the faint-hearted. If we want to feel good about ourselves, then we should avoid honest confrontation, honest consideration of our soul. Now, why would we put ourselves through such self-examination? Why would we look so deeply? The Pharisees are a warning to us. They were blind to their peril and so ignorant of their hope. Now, to look into our hearts and to see the truth of the corruption is wearying. And yet, and yet it's by growing weary of ourselves. It's by seeing the pretense of our self-made righteousness and seeing through the facade that we put up into the emptiness that is in. It's when we grow weary of ourselves that we will give up and give over to the author of life. And then there is hope. Just sit with Jesus' question. What does he ask? What do you think about the Messiah? What do you think? He's just said the greatest command is to love God completely and love your enemy. He said all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. And there's a sense in which that just lays us low. Because we do not and cannot obey these commands. Now what hope then is there for us? It, it, maybe we could somehow get, kind of get rid of the commands that stand against us. That's not our hope. That's not our hope at all. You see, by, by careful reading of Matthew's gospel, we would recall the other time Jesus speaks of the law and the prophets. Right at the beginning of his public ministry in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus, the Messiah, is here. He has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And, and how's he going to do it? Well, the law and the prophets are summed up in the commands to love. And that's how he does it. Jesus, the Messiah, loves, loved perfectly, loved his Father, loved God, his Father, with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind. A beautiful, mutual love between Father and Son. Now, there was never a moment when Jesus the Messiah did not love God completely. And because he loved God completely, he loved his neighbour as himself. He loved his neighbour perfectly. The Messiah is the king, but he is the king of love. And how does he love his neighbour? 
But when Jesus the Messiah speaks to the Pharisees, he is not seated at God's right hand yet. That there is a, a, a route to that place of glory. There is a, a, a pathway for him towards the throne of heaven and he's clearly proclaimed it. He said to his disciples, we are going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Philippians 2, when Paul writes about how the Christ, the Messiah, humbled himself, becoming a man like us, and then humbled himself even more to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, for that reason, because he humbled himself to death on the cross, for that reason, the Father has raised him, exalted him, lifted him up to, the, to give him the name above every name. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that the Lord is Jesus Christ. He will be raised. And, raising, and being raised, he will rise and take his seat at the right hand of God. And he will rule in resurrected glory until his enemies are subdued. And then when his enemies are subdued, he will return and usher in his consummated kingdom in all its fullness. So the kingdom of heaven will be the kingdom of God. And in all of that, he loves his father and he loves his neighbor. The path to glory is through the cross because the path is the path of love, ultimate love. And in Psalm 2, which speaks of the Messiah crushing his enemies, the psalm also appeals to those enemies it says to those enemies, come to the Son of God. Give the Son of God your heart. The psalm ends by saying, blessed are all who take refuge in him. There is a shelter from the crushing judgment of God. And that shelter comes in the refuge of the Son of God. And that refuge is what he built on Calvary's. There on the cross, the Messiah put his own life in the place of his people. And was crushed in their stead. And through the outpouring of his own blood, the sins of his people find atonement and guilt is removed. And then after that, he sat down. The Hebrews 1 says it is after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven after making purification. And yet I wonder, let me dare to ask, is that enough? Now what, what I mean is, have we, have we reached the high point of the love of God in the death of Christ when we get to the purification of sin? Is getting to forgiveness of sins, is that enough? Jesus the Messiah came to fulfill the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets summed in the great command, love the Lord your God with every globule of your being. Well, Christ did that for us. Did it in his perfect love for his neighbor, his blood-bought gift. His blood-bought gift is to enable us to love like that. You see, back in Deuteronomy 6, when, when the original command to love God with all your heart was given, it was then added that your hearts aren't able to love like that because they are crippled with sin. 
And yet later in Deuteronomy, God promises in Deuteronomy 30, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. In Psalm 51, as we heard already, it's what David prayed, create in me a pure heart. And that spiritual heart operation is what Christ won for us on the cross. Christ died to enable us to love God with all our hearts. Because what more could God have given for us to love than himself? And what more could God do than to undertake everything that is necessary? As John Piper says, everything necessary to enthrall us with what is most deeply and durably satisfying, namely himself. We were made to experience solid joy and substantial pleasure. We were made to love God and Christ died to make that possible. So what then of Jesus' question? What do you think of the Messiah? Now let that command to love, let it strip us of our self-obsession. And let that command to love drive us low, let it expose our futility, the futility of our distorted hearts. Let's learn our souls to be weary. Let's become deeply weary of ourselves, so weary of our hardness and our coldness and our dull attempts on our own merits and our own efforts to get anywhere. And then as the deer pants for streams of living water, may our souls long for the living God. And let's give up on ourselves and give over to the author of life and look to the Messiah. And look and look and look at the King of love. And look at him and look to him until that day when our love is perfected in the new creation. Until solid and substantial pleasure and joy is our full and constant theme. And every globule of our being is besotted with the glory of the infinite loveliness of our great God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may we be deeply weary of ourselves, that we give up on ourselves and give over to you, the author of life. And trust our all into the hands of your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of God.